I want you to think about this question. And really the, the sermon has one, one main point, right? One major point. Um, and that's this. Is Jesus ashamed of you? Is Jesus ashamed of you? Would Jesus have any hesitations about being seen with you? Would Jesus freely associate with you? Would Jesus be ashamed to admit he knows you? Would Jesus be ashamed to call you a brother or sister? Those those questions get at the heart of what we want to talk about today. It's Resurrection Day, but I want to focus our attention on a, on a very important and beneficial gift that the Lord has brought about because of His resurrection. And that is how He thinks about us. Now, forget for a moment what others think of you. Whether people are proud of you or ashamed of you, their opinion matters nothing to God. As a second person of our one triune God, Jesus' opinion matters greatly. If he approves, if he's not ashamed of you, you have nothing to be ashamed of. And yet, if he is, if he would be ashamed of you, then he calls you to action today. If, if Jesus is not ashamed to call you a brother, then, then you have a wonderful future ahead and, and simply need to rejoice in the Lord for the gift of salvation which he has given you. And yet, if Jesus won't associate with you as a brother or sister, then you are headed for eternal judgment and need to repent of your sins, believing in Jesus Christ alone for salvation before it's too late. So ask yourself, is Jesus ashamed of you? Clearly you want to say, he's not. If you are truly a child of God, someone Jesus would rightly call a brother and sister, he is not ashamed of you. Well, we want to read the scriptures together. So we're going to read ch uh, chapter two. And to pick up some of the context, I'm going to bring, I'm going to read verses nine to 18. And we're going to be looking at primarily verse 11. Hebrews chapter two, beginning at verse nine. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren, in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of a descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Is Jesus ashamed of you? I, I intended to do an exposition of verses 10, at least verses 10 through 13, and I will mention some of the details. But in my studies, I could not get past one phrase, one phrase of verse 11. He is not ashamed to call them brethren. You know, shame is a, a common experience in humanity. 
I don't know all of you in your individual lives, but I can speak confidently that you have faced shame at some port, some portion of your life. Um, for those who are parents, have you ever wanted to disown one of your children because of something they did or said, at least momentarily? And then there are some serious things they do that bring embarrassment to you as a parent. And, and in, a, in a sense, there's, you are ashamed of, of your child because of their behavior. But children don't think I'm picking on you. Parents um, have done things like this. So children, have you ever had your parents do something that just so embarrassed you? You wanted to get a ticket out of town and get away? Or on the more serious side, think about those parents who are the town drunk or a perpetual druggie or a regular shoplifter. Those children are ashamed of their parents. Christians, thinking about your churches. Have you ever been part of a church in which there were just so well, there were so many well-known hypocrites, people who lived one way when they were in the church building and then another way when they lived around the town that, that you didn't want to admit that you were part of that church. Uh-uh. You might have gone there, but you didn't want to admit it. Or unfortunately, there's many churches that have experienced the, the, the ridicule and shame of having one of your elders or pastors run off with money or run off with a woman that's not his wife. That, that's 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 shameful. And we, and we could go on. We could multiply this in many different ways in our culture. But, but these few examples, I think, will show you that we have all personally uh, experienced and are familiar with the idea of shame and, and being ashamed, either ashamed of our own behavior or, or being ashamed of someone else's behavior. So let's move the argument a little bit. We've talked about the horizontal plane. Let's talk about the vertical plane, our relationship with God. Our, in our relationship with God, right, there is a common experience of being ashamed before God. And, and here I'm speaking of our shame before God. Later I'll get to how Jesus responds to us. But right now we're just talking about our shame before God. Have you ever thought about how God responds to your sin? Specifically, what does he think of you when you lie, let's just take one sin. What does he think about you when you lie? When, when you lie, when you don't tell the truth, when your speech um, has more affinity with, with Jesus' enemy, the, the father of lies, than to Jesus? What does Jesus think about you at times like these? Is he embarrassed to be associated with you? And how would you respond to God if after you had lied, God approached you? And we're speaking hypothetically here, but, but you will see God at the moment of your death. So it's not so hypothetical. If God were to approach you after you lied, would you feel it appropriate just to converse with him as if nothing had happened? Or would you feel a sense of shame, a sense of shame that overwhelm you and cause you to try to hide from God? Lest you think, uh, we think that we're any better than others. We, we are not. Think about how Adam and Eve responded. In their original sin, they disobeyed God. They had clear instructions. They talked to God. And yet, they were deceived. They disobeyed God. How did they respond? Well, they were ashamed. They tried to hide from God. And even more than that, they they tried to sew fig leaves together to try to cover their naked bodies because now they were ashamed to be the way that God had made them. Fast forward to the New Testament. What about the Apostle Peter? The Apostle Peter denied being a, a disciple of Jesus. He, he, decided, he, he denied knowing Jesus, not, not once, not twice, but you know it, three times. And not three times in a lifespan, three times in just a few hours. How did he respond? He felt the shame. When, when he denied Christ that third time, the rooster crowed, 
He went out and away from Jesus. He knew his shame. He wept. Now note that both the disobedience of Adam and Eve and the disloyalty of the Apostle Peter were forgiven, but they could not be undone. What was done was done. Once Adam and Eve disobeyed, sin was introduced into the world. Then through sin, death entered the world. Once Peter denied Christ, he could also not undo that. He couldn't go back and and, and, and go to all those he had denied Christ to. They, they were long gone. Christ was crucified. The denial was made. Now, thankfully, we know that this is not the end of these stories. But think for a moment. If you would have been ashamed to call Peter a brother, would you have been ashamed to call Adam and Eve your ultimate biological grandparents? Now, let's consider a moment your own shame. Let's not think about others. Let's think about you. Think about the sins that you've committed about God or, or to, uh, you've committed to God, against God. Some of these only you know. No one else in this world knows. You know those secrets, but God also knows. You can't go back and undo those. They, they cannot, uh, you can't go back and unbreak the law can't redo the situation and because of your shameful behavior you feel shame when you think about these if you're thinking rightly especially if you're thinking about approaching the God who sees and knows all things and and so you can't hide anything from him you can hide things from people but you can't hide anything from God now think about the more profound question not are you ashamed in his presence but is he ashamed of you. Now what about to the person this morning who might think that they don't really understand what I'm talking about as far as shame before God. What if you feel no shame? Some of you might not be able to relate to being ashamed, not because you haven't sinned against God, but because your sense of shame has quit working as God intended it. Due to your sin, your own personal sin, and exposure to sin in the community, your conscience is no longer healthy and functioning correctly. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Two scenarios. In scenario one, there's a a uniformed U.S. soldier walking on the square of Medina here locally. His uniform makes him look clean, sharp, and proper. Someone you could respect. Yet inwardly, his life is a moral sewer. You can't see that, of course. You can't see that he just purchased a pornographic magazine and has hidden that magazine in one of his pockets so that it wouldn't be noticed. He's uh, afraid of the shame that might come upon him if he were to walk down the street with that openly. Scenario two. Something I witnessed in Poland, so I'll use that example. A Polish... Polish soldier in uniform walking down the sidewalk of a major city. He also looks sharp and clean outwardly until you notice what he's doing while he's walking. He has a pornographic magazine in his hand and he's leafing through it as he walks down the street. A busy street at that with lots of pedestrians. What's the difference? What's the difference between these two men? The one man's trying to hide his actions and the other man's acting if, as if his actions don't make a difference at all. There's no big deal. Obviously, both men are fornicators who are guilty of breaking God's commandment not to lust after a woman who is not your spouse. But why is one man hiding his actions while the other man openly flaunting them? Put another way, why does the first man feel shame over an act that the second man doesn't give a second thought to? And the answer relates to shame. The first man, though he is not ashamed to to look at the magazine in private, he is ashamed to look at the magazine in public. there There is a community awareness, there is a community shame that he will suffer if he engages in this in a public fashion. In scenario two, the Polish man is not at all concerned that his 
behavior will bring shame upon himself. So not only is his own conscience stopped working, but there is a societal uh, conscience, if you will, that has stopped functioning as well. In, in scenario one, pornographic magazines are, are kept behind the counter at convenience stores. And we can be thankful that they stay there, but, but they're there nonetheless. But in scenario two, pornographic magazines are placed on the bottom two shelves of every grocery store in town, right where the kids walk by and checking out the grocery store. You don't have to go looking for them. They find you. Long before you want to explain that to your children. So why am I bringing, why am I bringing this up? What should you take away from this portion of the message today? This is very important that you listen. Just because you don't feel shame doesn't mean you haven't done something shameful before God. Just because you are not ashamed and feel that shame doesn't mean that you haven't done something shameful in God's sight. We need something to help us. How do we know if we are, if we are at a point of, of shame before God or not? Well, you can't rely upon your feelings since as it's an example, which is a common example, our feelings will totally mislead us. You can't rely upon the society because as we've seen this example, society can totally mislead us as well. But the only objective standard that we have, and you know where I'm going with this, is the Word of God. The, the Word of God gives us an objective lens into our lives to see whether we've done something shameful before God, sins before against Him. For brevity, I'll just highlight one small part of God's Word to help us with this examination, we're just going to walk through some of the some of the Ten Commandments that reveal God's timeless morality. So as we go through these, just hold yourself up to the light of God's word and and see what God's light exposes. And I just implore you to allow scripture to be a mirror into your soul. Have you loved the one true God with the totality of your being and all of your resources? Have you ever created your own ideas about God? Have you ever worshipped or served idols? In America, you don't see physical idols and people bowing down to them, although it does happen. So apply this to the idols of the heart. These are the things that you did drive you. Why you live. They, they explain why you do what you do. Have you ever used the Lord's name in vain? Have you ever, have you always honored and obeyed your mother and father? Have you ever murdered anyone? And, and all of us are sitting here, well, I haven't done that one, except we know what Jesus said in the New Testament, don't we? So we don't get off the hook. If you've ever been angry with your brother, right, you're guilty of murdering your brother. That's how extensive the law of God is. Have you ever committed adultery? Again, we have to push this to the extension where Jesus took it. Have you ever looked upon a woman with lust after her? If so, you're guilty of adultery of the heart. Have you ever stolen anything, even something small? Have you ever lied? Have you ever coveted someone else's wife, house, vehicle, job, awards? Fill in the blank. How did you score yourself on this examination? By the way, none of us in this room are coming out with passing marks. Right? Let's just establish that. None of us do. But I want you to see that all of us in this room fail the test. All of us would be ashamed before God. And rightfully so. And these commands, are, which you can read for yourself in Deuteronomy 5, objectively show us that we're all guilty before God. We all, we all have done something shameful. We all have done something to, to cast shame upon God's name, upon our own lives, but particularly upon God and who He is and His glory. And it's true whether we feel it or not, and whether our society recognizes it or not. This is an objective reality. So really a, a shameful people or shameful people living amongst a shameful society. 
borrow some of Isaiah's words. Um, Think about how God responds. We've established shame's common. We've established that that all of us are are really in a a place of, of being ashamed before God. Think about how God responds to our shameful behavior, our sin. How does God respond to this? Is Jesus ashamed of us because of our sin? But before I give you the answer, many of you know where I'm going with this, but I, I want to give you two major errors to avoid when we think about how Jesus responds to our sin, because these are very prevalent in our society. The first error is the response to say, God doesn't really care about your sin. He doesn't really care. And, and some would just say that totally. Some would be involved in the hyper grace movement. But, but nonetheless, the, the, the net effect is the same. God doesn't really care about your sin. You know, God's so loving, he will associate with you just as you are. Now, I'm to be careful when I use that term. Christ calls you to faith just as you are. But he doesn't leave you just as you are. You will never see God just as you are. And we can be thankful for that because that would be a torturous experience. For a sinner to be in the presence of a holy God is, would be torturous punishment. But, but this is the society that, that this is the message that many in our society are pushing. They, they, at least the ones that still acknowledge that God exists. This is the message of many mainline Christian denominations, churches that have gone to the social gospel. And even some so-called evangelical churches, they've so watered down the term evangelical. The word evangelical means nothing these days. These groups emphasize that God is love, which we totally embrace, but they overemphasize it because they don't emphasize everything else in the scriptures. They, they ignore teachings about God's holiness and his righteousness. They say that God will respond with love and acceptance just as you are. They will tell you that that God loves you for who you are. They will tell you there's no need to be ashamed of your behavior. They say you should be proud of who you are since God accepts you. There's big movements like this all throughout our society. But I, I want you to hear clearly, this message is dead wrong. This is a lie from the pit of hell itself. It doesn't matter if it comes from UCC, or if it doesn't matter if it comes from a, from, from a Methodist church, it doesn't matter whether it's coming from a radical Catholic church, it doesn't matter whether it's coming from the evangelical church down the street, all these things are lies straight from Satan himself. He's using them as mouthpieces to spread his lies. When people tell you that, that God will accept you just as you are, you know what they're doing? Your conscience is already seared. And they're just pouring more coals onto that seared conscience. Pouring fire onto fire doesn't help put out the fire. Now, I know there's a forestry example. You can use fire to burn out a fire, but we're not talking about it. We're talking about putting fire on the fire. We're talking about adding gasoline to, to, to a fire that's already going. So when someone says, oh, you don't need to worry about your sin. God will love you for who you are. Think of it like gasoline, just burning further your conscience. That's not what is going to help you. You don't need more heat when you've already got a conscience that's on fire and seared. You need refreshing cold water. You need the Savior, Jesus Christ, who is able to forgive, to cleanse, and to restore your conscience, to make that conscience new. Well, that's the first error. The second error, the second error, kind of on the other side of the pendulum, is that God wants you to clean your act up before you come to him. And this lie comes from the Roman Catholic Church. It comes from cults and, and practically all world, all world religions. There's something for you to do. You, you just, you gotta do this. You gotta do that to get your act together. And there are even some Christians who end up sending this message because they teach a, a legalistic lifestyle that suggests one must earn God's acceptance or you have to go back under the mosaic law to earn god's acceptance you you fill in the blank you have to dress a certain way you have to do certain things you have to pray more you have to read the bible more if you do these things they say god will accept you but understand this too is a lie of satan there's no amount of good 
that can make up for your sins. To put it another way, there's no amount of commendable actions that can cancel out your shameful acts. And, and this is partly true because even the things that we, we think are commendable are really in God's eyes detestable. They're like filthy rags, Isaiah said. Our righteousness is like filthy rags. So things we think are commendable when judged in the light of God and all that he knows when he judges not only our actions, but our attitudes and our motives. It's all like filthy rags. And thus we really cannot do anything that God would consider that God would consider commendable to convince him to accept us or not be ashamed of us. But uh, but consider that even if we could do something good, this does not remove our status of shame as someone who has violated the law of God. Remember, we were talking about earlier that Adam and Eve couldn't undo that shame. Peter could not undo that shame. We also cannot undo our shame. There's nothing you can do. Let me give you a little illustration of that. Let's say you're driving to work and and you're on the edge of just running late and you don't want to be late to work one more time. There's one particularly long traffic stoplight that that if you get caught at it, you know that you're going to be late. And as you approach it, it turns yellow and quickly turns to red. And you don't want to be late. So you run the stoplight. You get through it. You get to work on time. Everything's okay. A few weeks later, you get something in the mail. And it's a big ticket. And so you decide to to fight that ticket. So you go to the judge and you show up on, on court. They hope and the police officer doesn't show up or whoever signs those things doesn't show up to testify against you. But they do. So you make your case to the judge and you say, Judge, I was running late. I, I really just couldn't be late. No one was hurt. There was no accident. I stopped at all the other stoplights. And I didn't speed. And you could just mount the evidence. And you could say, statistically, I'm a really good driver. What's the judge going to say? Well, if he's a, he's a good judge, he or she is going to say, well, I appreciate that you obeyed all those other laws, but you broke that one. And so you're guilty of that one. They're, they're not going to grade you kind of on the curve. And I re- recognize that not every judge is like that, but, but if they were just, sometimes they judges offer mercy and we're thankful for that. But if they're just, they have to find you guilty of breaking that light. There's nothing you can undo. You can't undo running that stoplight. Now, I'm not making this stuff up. This is very similar to what we read in James 2.10. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. Now, none of us are guilty of just one sin. But if we were, only had one sin, that's enough to put us in the category of a lawbreaker before God, and that's shameful. So, beloved, realize that these two erroneous responses have to be avoided. We have to avoid thinking that there's something we can do to, to make ourselves acceptable to God, to take away that shame. And we also have to avoid the error of thinking that there is no shame, that we don't have to worry about it. And, and the proof for all this, or the, the proof that, there, that, that, that God provides help for us. He doesn't leave us in this precarious place where we can't do anything to help ourselves and yet we can't ignore it. He provides help for our shame and that is in the person of Jesus Christ. Look, look at your Bibles. All this has kind of been an introduction. <laughs> now you know I couldn't get past verse 11. Um... In, in Hebrews, 10, Hebrews chapter 2. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. I want to unpack that statement. He is not ashamed to call them brethren. Who's, who's the he? Well, if we read the context, you see that he is most clearly Jesus Christ. He is described as the author of our salvation. Verse 10, by the way, that word author is is translated by the King James Version and some others as the captain. It talks about someone who is blazing the trail. He's leading the way. And there's only one person who can do that, Jesus Christ. Verse 11 says, he's the one who sanctifies. 
Verse 11 also says he's from the Father. Uh, Verse 9 says he's the one who has tasted death for everyone. Verse 17, he's the one who is a merciful, merciful and faithful high priest. Verse 18, he's been tempted, but he's never been a sinner. He's able to come to the aid of those in need. He couldn't do that if he had sinned. So clearly the, the he in verse 11 when he says he is not ashamed to call them brethren. He is Jesus Christ. Who's, who's the them in verse 11? The them are believers in Jesus Christ. These are, are those who have been born again by God. Notice in verse 10 that, that they, these are, are those who are, who are called sons. Sons, it says there in verse 10, for it's fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things to bring many sons to glory. They're they're sons. Uh, These are the ones who Jesus sanctifies. So Jesus is described as the one who sanctifies, but then they are described as the ones who those who are sanctified, those who are sanctified. That's his followers. That's those who believe in him. They are described in verse 13 as the children whom God has given me. So here, verse 13 is, is, is being used by the author of Hebrews. To, to, he's quoting the Old Testament there, but it's, it's really talking about Christ. This is a prophetic statement that Christ would utter. He's, he's, he's really putting, him, putting a cry, these words upon the mouth of Christ. And... And, and these these are those who believe in Christ. Now, you might look at verse nine, look at verse nine for a minute. At the end of verse nine, it says, um, because of the suffering of death, Jesus is crowned with glory and honor so that by grace, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. You, you might say, well, that's everyone. Is that really everyone? You have to be very careful with the context. Can't, you can't take the word everyone and just just apply that with without any bounds unless unless the context allows you to do that. Here, the context indicates that this everyone is not everyone without limits, but everyone who believes in Jesus Christ. Proof of that would be look for a minute at verse uh, chapter two, verses uh, one to four. Where here the author says, for this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and obedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken to the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. So the writer's warning us, how will we escape if we neglect this, implying that there are we people who do neglect it? How are we going to face God in our with all of our shame? Well, you, you're going to be punished for that unless you're found to be in Christ. But the good news is all those who come to know Christ, he is not ashamed to call them brethren. What does it mean to be ashamed? You know it in a relational sense, but let's look at it. Let's look at it, how the, how the term, what the terms mean themselves. The verb to be ashamed is part of a group of, of Greek words that, that all relate to the idea of shame. One New Testament dictionary um, notes three important ways that, that the words in this word group are, are used. And I'll just quote. The word may refer to an inhibitive emotion. That is a feeling that prevents a person from doing something that is objectionable to others. In this sense, it may be associated with such terms as modesty and respect. It may refer to the feeling of impropriety experienced by a person after doing something objectionable. In this sense, it is associated with humiliation as a subjective experience with guilt and embarrassment. Notice both those relate to how you feel. There's a shameful feelings or embarrassment. 
Thirdly, it may refer to the outward state or condition of being held in low regard. In this sense, it is associated with humiliation as an objective reality with dishonor, disgrace, ignominy. So there's there's senses of which shame is subjective and there's an objective sense. So God, God obviously will look at us from the objective sense until we believe in Jesus Christ. Now it's interesting that the particular Greek word that is used is, is a compound word here. In, the one I'm speaking of is in Hebrews 2.11. The word be ashamed. It's, a, it's an intensified verb from the word shame. It's used 11 times in the New Testament. And the New International Dictionary of the New Testament notes that in all 11 cases, this, this compound word seems to convey the idea of shame in this subjective sense. In the subjective sense of embarrassment or feel, feel, feeling of or fear of ridicule. Now, just help us understand that. It's not saying that your shame is subjective. What it's saying is like in the, this context, it's saying when it says that he is not ashamed to call them brethren, it's saying he is not embarrassed to call you brethren. He, he is not fearful of ridicule to call you brother. Now, now, here are some other examples of the word that I think will help us understand this. And one relates to our shame. Another relates to how, um, of what we feel about Jesus. Mark 8.38, Jesus said this, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. It gives you a little insight. When is Jesus not going to be ashamed of, of them? When is, he not, no, when is he not going to be ashamed to call them brethren? When he comes in his glory with his holy angels. But he does say, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, then the man, son of man will be ashamed of him. Meaning that, that person is not a believer. They are not saved. Even if they look like they're religious. Uh, Luke 9.26 is a, a parallel passage with this, but adds a little more detail. So I'm just going to read that. Luke 9.26. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. So Jesus is going to show up and the Shekinah glory is going to be right there with him. You will not miss it. Will he be ashamed of you? Or will he not be ashamed? Of you, this word is very. You're probably familiar with it from another passage, Romans uh, chapter one, verse sixteen. Paul says, "For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. But as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith." And then in 2 Timothy 1.8, Paul, talking to Timothy, says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. We could, we could look at others, but this, this helps us understand that we're talking about feelings. Right? When, you're, when you're ashamed of the gospel, that's a feeling. You don't want to be ridiculed because of the gospel. The gospel is a foolish message, humanly speaking. But when we're not ashamed, we put our confidence in God rather than what people think about us. We will not be ashamed of the gospel. So when we read, he was not ashamed to call them brethren, we need to understand this verse is telling us that Jesus is not embarrassed to call them brethren. Jesus has no fear that, that Satan's going to show up and go, ha, huh, that one? You think, you think he should be called brethren? You're foolish, Jesus. Satan won't do that. Because Jesus is never going to utter a lie. He does something so that he, to us, so that he's not embarrassed to call us his brethren. This is an absolutely phenomenal and spectacular statement. He is not ashamed to call us, or call them brethren. Apply it to us. He is not ashamed to call us Brethren, I'm using the word brethren 
because that's what the scriptures do, but it, it refers to, to, to men and women who believe in Christ. It, the Holy Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, is not ashamed to call you a brother, even though you've done lots of shameful things. This is a phenomenal statement. Why is it phenomenal? First, notice that this declaration is is put the way it's put. It's it's in the present tense. He is not ashamed to call us brethren. It's not uh, he he's he's ashamed right now, but in the future he won't be. He will not. He doesn't doesn't say he will not be ashamed. It says he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Kind of gives a new new uh, maybe a new perspective on on why I believe. The scriptures teach eternal security. Present tense. If you're truly in Christ, he is not ashamed to call you brother. Second, understand that this is a great privilege that Jesus calls us brethren. You know that the original disciples were not called brethren until after Jesus' resurrection. They were called lots of things. Disciples, followers, slaves, servants. But they were never, on the lips of Jesus, Jesus never calls them brethren until after the resurrection. Because something had to happen. He couldn't call people brethren who were in the pit of shame, who were guilty of sins. Remember, from First John we learned that God is light and He... He can't have any fellowship with darkness. Something had to happen. And he did it. And he didn't waste any time. He wasn't reluctant with it. We read it today in Matthew 8 to 10, Matthew 28, 10. Jesus said to his disciples this. He said to the, to the women who came looking for, came to the tomb to put spices on his body, but they found the empty tomb. He said this. Jesus said to them, do not be afraid and take word to my brethren. Take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee. There they will see me. Not my disciples, my brethren. First time, my brethren. This is a phenomenal statement in light of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. That it shows that as the author of our salvation, he's also going to be the completer of our salvation. Why is it that Jesus is not ashamed to call believers brothers? I've hinted at it, but I want to dig a little deeper. Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers because he sanctifies them. Look at verse verse 11. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. Note, the, note that the idea of sanctification is dominant in this verse. Jesus is the sanctifier Jesus sanctifies his people and they are sanctified. Jesus doesn't ever fail at his work. I have plenty of unfinished projects. Jesus is not like that. He never starts something and then fails to finish or decides he doesn't want to do that. It's planned before the foundation of the world. What he begins, he'll finish. The one Greek dictionary explains that the word sanctify means to separate, consecrate, cleanse, purify, sanctify, regard, or reverence as holy. All those meanings are there. Different various words uh, uh, to sanctify is used in various ways in Scripture, and it's not the place or time to do a, a, length, a lengthy study on, on that idea, but it is so rich. Jesus separates you, He consecrates you. He cleanses you. He purifies you. Sanctifies you. He regards or reverences you as holy. Because you actually are. Why? Because you actually got that way yourself? No. This is what Christ does for us. This is why the resurrection is such good news. That Christ paid for our sins. Died for our sins. Was resurrected to newness of life. To show that the penalty has been paid in full. Death could not hold him. Death had no claim. The penalty for sin had been paid in full for all those who believe in him. And Jesus does this. And this is why 
Jesus is not ashamed to call them brethren. Now, now think about that in, in light of your present struggles with sin. Our present struggles with sin for those who are in Christ are viewed through the lens of completion by Jesus. Though the work of sanctification in a believer's life is not complete until, until they die or see Jesus when he returns, Jesus views their sanctification before him as, as good as done. Because he's the one doing it. Now, some would respond to that and say, well, why do anything? Well, you have to keep everything balanced that I've said. God is concerned about your shame. And, and that's why in Philippians 2, 12 to 13, we're, we're told to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you. God wasn't at work in us. Our sanctification, our efforts of sanctification would be futile, vain. But because God's at work in us, we're called to work. And that, that work out your salvation is talking about sanctification. We're called to do that. But realize, if you are in Christ, God will complete the work he has begun in your life. And he views you through that lens. He is not ashamed to call you brethren. You know, when we look at our lives, we still remember some things that we did we're not proud of. We remember the shame. And Paul kind of brings this to light in Romans 6. Romans 6, verses 20 and 21. It says, For you, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. When you're a slave of sin, you enjoyed your sin. But those things viewed from the proper lens, the lens of, of God, are shameful things. And the outcome of those things is death. Not just physical death, but, but judgment, eternal judgment from God. So this leads us to consider on what grounds does Jesus, does Jesus sanctify those who believe in him? On what grounds? How can he take someone who's filthy, dirty, shameful and, and clean them, cleanse them, give them a new conscience and, and make them to be such a wonderful example of God's work that he's not ashamed to call them brethren? Well, I'd like to answer that in part by continuing reading in Romans 6.22. He says, but now you have been freed from sin and enslaved to God. You derive your benefit resulting in sanctification, the outcome eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Lord did something. He died for us and rose again. So on what grounds did Jesus sanctify those who believe in him? Number one, he, he died on their behalf. And we told that in verse 9 of Hebrews uh, 2.9. He died on their behalf. Verse 10, the Father perfected Jesus through the sufferings. Think about that. We could do a whole sermon on that, that, that the author of the salvation was perfected through what he suffered. And the word perfected there doesn't mean that there was something, some, some sinful uh, uh, idea or, or something lacking in Jesus' life that, that he was less than perfect. What it means is that he had never experienced suffering and he needed to die for our sins. So ultimately, he's pointing to his death. And, and that verse says it was it was fitting, verse 10, for it was fitting for him, speaking to the Father, is fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things and bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Jesus became a merciful and faithful high priest. You read about that in verses uh, 14 to 18. I won't take the time to look at them now, but but it's clearly there. And later in the book of Hebrews, uh, we'll be reminded if you read through that, that, that Jesus offered up his body as a sacrifice for all, once for all, not on the earthly tabernacle, but in the heavenly one. He did that for all. In Hebrews 2.12, we're told that Jesus is called the author and perfecter of faith, who willingly endured the shame of the cross and becoming sin on our behalf so he might bring us to God. You know that shame you feel? Jesus took it on the cross. There's great shame for Jesus. Number one, to, to, to die the death of the cross. Number two, there was shame in him becoming sin. He became your sin without being guilty of your sin. He became your sin. And felt the shame of your sin. And he willingly did this for you. 
What a wonderful Savior we have. And in the immediate context of Hebrews 2.10, Jesus is called our author of salvation. This is what qualifies him to sanctify his people, all these things. And so that when you think about Jesus, think about 2 Corinthians 5.21, how, how, the, how our God worked to bring about our salvation. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. Not ashamed to call us brothers. Because that's who we really are. If you are in Christ. Again, just, just look back at, at verse 11. He says, For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. Uh, notice the word Father is italicized. So that's an interpretation there. But... But many uh, scholars believe that's pointing to God the Father. So I think it's a, it's a, a good um, interpretation. All from one. And there's a, there's a common bond that's being shared. By the power of God, those who believe in Jesus Christ have been born of God and share a fellowship with God that they did not formally have. They did not earn that. It was a gift of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. And in a future message, we're going to look at the Trinity and I'll try to, try to help you understand what, what all that means. But for now, just understand that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. The disciples are called children of God. Right? Born of God. Born from above. And so Jesus is not ashamed to call them brethren because they truly are brethren. We are truly brethren. That don't take this the way that false teachers take this. You are not a little God. You are not Christ's equal. But you have the privilege of gaining access to the blessings of Christ and Him calling you a brother. There is now a genuine fellowship that Jesus has with His disciples that comes through being born again. Look at second first uh, Peter one twenty three for that. We won't take the time to do that. But but to show you that there's great emphasis on this, I'm not going to unpack it, but I'm going to point you to it. Look at verses tw- uh, twelve and thirteen. The author takes two verses to emphasize the point that Jesus has brethren, not biological children. That's not what we talked about, but it's applied to him. In a, in a spiritual sense. Verse 12. This is Jesus speaking. This is prophetically speaking of Jesus. So verse 12 comes from Psalm 22. And verse 13 comes from Isaiah 8. Verses 17 and 18. The author of Hebrews writes. Again putting these words into Jesus' mouth. He says I will proclaim your name to my brethren. So he's speaking to the father. Jesus is saying I will proclaim your name to them. To my brethren, in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Say, and again in verse 12, I will, uh, sorry, verse 13, and again, I will put my trust in him. Now you might think, well, that, that's a little strange. You know, isn't Jesus God? Well, yes, Jesus is God. But there's plenty of passages that show that Jesus put his trust in God. Right? What did he do the night before he was crucified? Right? Go to John 17, you'll see him in prayer, putting his trust in the Father. Even though Jesus himself is God, these things are true. Even if we can't understand how all these things are true. Verse 13, Jesus says, I will put my trust in him, and again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. You see, the the Trinity is all involved. God in the three persons is all involved in your salvation. It's not as if Jesus is, is... uh, loving and compassionate and the Father is harsh um, and will hardly listen. That's not true. The Father loves you and sent His Son. It wasn't Jesus didn't take that on a mission on His own. The Father sent His Son to, to die for sins, to become sin for us that all those who believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, now think about Adam and Eve as we, as we kind of wrap things up. Think about how Adam and Eve, they sinned against God, they fled, they, they hid. How did God respond? 
He could have, could have abandoned them, but he didn't. He lovingly confronted their sins and made uh, clothes of animal skins to cover their shame, really pointing to the greater covering that's, and that we have in Christ. To them he promised a Savior who would eventually defeat Satan and remove the blight and shame of sin. Couldn't undo it, but he can wash it away. Now think about the Apostle Peter after he denied the Lord three times. He ran away from the Lord in shame, but his flight was only momentarily, only temporary. Jesus sought out Peter, didn't reject him. He sought out Peter after the resurrection and and assured him that his sin and shame of denial were removed. That's when he asked Peter, do you do you love me three times? Now think about someone else we've read about. We read earlier, Matthew 27, 28. Think about Judas Iscariot, who betrayed the Lord just once. Judas very quickly regretted his decision. He knew the shameful actions that he took. And he was so ashamed of himself when, when he could get no help from the religious leaders. They just said, ah, you deal with it. He did what? He returned the money. And he had so much shame that he ran further away from Jesus and committed suicide. He thought that he could escape his shame in the grave. Many in our society think that too. It causes them to commit suicide when they've done something shameful. But, it, but beloved, understand, the grave is not going to hide your shame before God. You're going to take that with you and stand before him in all your shame unless you are clothed in righteousness by Christ. You know, ultimately, the only difference between Peter and Judas is the direction they ran when they were ashamed. I would argue that Peter's sin was greater. In some senses, he denied Christ three times. But instead of running away from Jesus, Peter ran to Jesus. Judas ran away and never came back. If you have not believed in Jesus Christ and been transformed by the power of God to regenerate you and make you new, I call you today to put your trust in Jesus Christ who can wash away your sins, cleanse your conscience, and make you run to Him for shelter and safety. He can protect you in the grave. Death will not. Will you choose Christ today? Will you not procrastinate another day? Don't let society turn you away from Christ, receiving Him and believing in Him today. If you will do that, you will be saved. That's the Lord's promise. Just as surely as He said He will not be ashamed to call them brethren, He has said He will forgive you to all those who call upon Him. And when I say call upon Him, I don't mean just, just a factoid in your head. Yeah, I believe God exists. I believe Jesus exists. That's not saving faith. That's just facts. When we talk about saving faith, we're talking about trust. The same kind of trust you would, you would need to have if you were in an airplane that was going down and you had a parachute. Decide, are you going to put that parachute on or not? You can put the parachute on, but if you don't jump out of the plane, you're still going to die. You've got to jump out of the plane. And, and that's a... That's a, that's a uh, an analogy to help you understand the kind, what we're talking about when we say believe in Christ and trust in Christ. Either that parachute's going to save you or it's not. And you have to come to that with Christ. He, either He's going to save you or He's not. And He will. But, but you've got to fully trust Him. Now to those of you who are already in Christ today, I, I just ask you to meditate on this. He is not ashamed to call you brother or sister in Christ. He's not ashamed. His work is so complete. His gift is so magnificent that there's nothing left. There's, there's nothing left that you can contribute to remove your shame or um, to, to contribute in any way to how God um, reacts to you. How shall we who who know these things, remain silent 
We must praise Him and, and live for His glory and live for His glory until He comes. Right? To that day, that day yet ahead. Brother, what a glorious God that, that we have. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank You for Your loving kindness, the great gift of, of salvation, the great gift of, of being a brother of Christ, a brother or sister, the, the blessed, the blessedness, Lord, and the bliss of being in a state where we could be with you and you are not ashamed to call us brethren. And the, the, the stain of our shame is all gone. Gone. You've cleansed and wiped it away. You've wiped every tear from our eye. That's who you are. Lord, I just ask you to do your work in our lives. Use this word to edify us, encourage us, perhaps bring some to saving faith even today, on the Lord's Day, on Resurrection Day, that this might be the day of their salvation. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.